Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it, that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept, O Lord, the willing praise of my mouth. I will not get your The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. Hey, good deal there. And we have Miss Magnuson back. Finally, finally. So good to see you. How are you? How wonderful. How are you? <laughs> How wonderful. <laughs> oh, praise the Lord. And I assume your husband is coming yeah, in eventually. Parking. He's finding parking. Okay. Let's see. Today is the, anybody, 14th, 15th? The 15th. 15th of November. Let's see what we have to say about that. One of the most famous Christian authors actually wrote only one book, a book that most of his readers have never heard of. Oswald Chambers was born in Aberdeen, Scotland in 1874 the son of a Baptist minister. As a teenager, he accompanied his father to hear the famous Baptist preacher, anybody? Spurgeon. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Afterward, young Oswald told his father that if there had been an opportunity at the service, he would have given himself to the Lord. His father quickly answered, you can do it now, my boy. And there on a London street with his father, Oswald Chambers quietly surrendered his life to Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. After studying at Edinburgh University, Chambers entered Dunoon Gospel Training College in 1897 to prepare for the ministry. He then served as a tutor at the school for eight years. While he was there, his faith grew, and he developed a great zeal for evangelism. He next served as a traveling Bible teacher for the Pentecostal League of Prayer. In 1911, he became the first principal of the Bible Training College at Clapham Common, London. However, World War I soon exploded upon Europe and the college was closed in 1915. Chambers then joined the staff of the YMCA and with his wife Gertrude, known to all as Biddy, he sent, uh, was sent to Egypt to minister to the English and Australian troops stationed in Zaytun and Ismailia. The YMCA constructed 72 by 40 foot huts constructed with walls of matting made of local reeds so that the army soldiers would have a place to come and relax. Chambers was to supervise them. When he arrived in Zaytun, he immediately put up a sign that read YMCA study hut open 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. for reading, writing, and study. A blackboard lecture each evening at 7.30 p.m. Within a week, he had 400 soldiers packed in each night to hear him teach the Bible. Hundreds came to Christ. He wrote in his diary, There are so many saved souls waiting instruction, and they take it with zest. There's no difficulty at all in getting men to decide for Christ. They do it readily. In 1916, the YMCA planned evangelistic crusades throughout all the Egyptian military camps with Chambers as the evangelist. Chambers wrote in his diary of the meeting at the Ismailia camp, we had some magnificent decisions and I would not allow any singing or even bowing of heads, but just told them to come out before all their comrades if they meant business and out they came. On October 17, 1917, Chambers returned from a Wednesday night prayer meeting feeling ill. Intense abdominal pain continued until finally on October 29th, he allowed himself to be taken to the Gizeh Red Cross Hospital 
The surgeon operated immediately to remove Chambers' appendix. Chambers began to recover, but on November 4th, he developed a blood clot, and on November 15th, 1917, he died. His wife, Biddy, cabled back to England the simple message, Oswald is in his presence. Chambers had written just one book before he died, baffled to fight better, but he had kept a journal. Biddy was a trained court stenographer and had taken down word for word many of his hundreds of messages delivered at colleges and military camps. Several years after Oswald's death, Biddy began editing his material into 365 daily readings and named it Yes, my utmost for his highest. She completed it in 1927, 10 years after Oswald's death. Today, the book remains among top Christian titles sold annually. Biddy edited 12 more books from Oswald's material and published them under his name, never once mentioning her own. Oswald Chambers left a legacy both in the lives he influenced and in the words he spoke. What do you think will be your legacy? Not many of us will ever find our words in print, but, of all, but all of us can make a difference in the lives of those around us. Your lives are a letter written in our hearts, and everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ prepared by us. It is written not with pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living God. It is carved not on a stone, but on human hearts. That's 2 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3. So great stuff there. And let's see here. We have uh, some prayer requests that uh, I, I even hate mentioning this. I just It breaks my heart. Uh, some people that attend online with us, Bruce and Jackie, their daughter has uh, uh, had some problems in the past, and she went to a center to get that squared away, and no sooner did she get out than she's gone right back to the old ways. And so uh, I would ask everybody to remember Bruce and Jackie in prayer personally and their daughter that she would grow a spiritual brain and uh along with her carnal brain and yield herself to the lord it's very difficult i i when i read their email or i got their a phone call first i was just literally heartbroken yesterday and they said it's okay that i mentioned this so if you just would remember elise and bruce uh, bruce and jackie in prayer and then uh just as a note and i'll mention it again sunday if i remember is that uh, mark who's been attending for a couple weeks he uh, asked me to baptize him we did that yesterday and so this is just a reminder that if you've never been scripturally back baptized and uh, it's something that uh, you want to follow the lord and believers baptism we make that available any day of the year please be there i even take tomorrow. you what's that even tomorrow absolutely i don't care coldest day of the year we'll go down to turtle beach and i'll baptize you but uh yeah anyway just just as a reminder that that is available and uh we'll go ahead and uh we've got two people just came in uh, yes we got steve and i forgot it marissa yes. okay marissa okay good steve and marissa they were here on sunday as oh, well okay. yeah i've known steve for many years when i had my business down there he used oh, to come so, in and... was he the one who was here last week yeah okay, yeah right. there you go and right, well See, he's got his beautiful wife with him, so now he's noticeable. See? <laughs> there you go. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come into your presence and to uh, share your word and to study it and to uh, just revel in it. And Lord, we love you. We thank you for the cool weather you've sent our way. That's such a relief after a long, long summer. And uh, Lord, there are certainly people in California that are suffering. There are some that... Uh, Probably, I hate to even say it, but they probably deserved it. But there are many that were affected that didn't and that have called on you and that they've lost everything in the process. And 
we would ask that you would comfort the afflicted and also bring to the people that uh, have not called on you and that have been contrary to you. Maybe this will be a time in their lives where they'll humble themselves and realize that the things they had didn't matter as much as the lives they lead. We would pray this, Lord, and we certainly pray for Bruce and Jackie and their daughter. And uh, we just thank you for uh, Miss Magnuson being here tonight after all these many weeks of not being able to come. It's a real pleasure to have her show up and see her smiling face. So, Lord, we praise you. We ask that you bless this time here, and uh, we just uh, ask that you uh, keep us from straying from what is correct in your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I uh, thought about it. I got people that asked me to do this book and that and one book and another, and uh, uh, and Jim was the first one to ask. He asked me to do the book, The Gospel of John, but I have not written a commentary on John and um, it would be a lot of work every week to prepare a, a good Bible study on that. So I didn't do that. And I thought, I, I don't want to take somebody over somebody else. And um, I had in my own heart the two books that I love. I mean, I absolutely love them. I love all the books in the Bible, but I love Galatians because it tells people very clearly to stay away from what's happening again in the world today, the Hebrew Roots Movement. I mean, this is something that started at Paul's time. It's been going on in the church ever since. It really started to bloom uh, with the Seventh-day Adventists going back to Sabbath observance and uh, legalism. And then since then, you know, uh, Israel, the Jews have been coming to Christ and many of them have brought in Judaism and they've fallen back on the law. And that brings me to the second book that I uh, thought about doing which we're doing a daily commentary on which is hebrews and i i would probably love to do that one the most but i thought that uh rather than doing that just because i doubt it would happen but the the class may actually get ahead of itself where the commentaries that i'm writing every day we catch up and i thought i better not do that just in case probably wouldn't be the case but i'm going to put off on doing hebrews even though it's really important at this time in the world because it won't be long before the church is taken out. And when the church is taken out at the rapture, Hebrews is going to be the book that the Jews need to understand. They need to have that fundamental understanding of what is being said in the book of Hebrews. So those were my two personal choices, Galatians and Hebrews. But I thought I don't want to do that because Paul's letters are written in order for a reason. And he has uh, given us doctrine for the church age. And they follow, if you look at Paul's letters, Every one of them in order from Romans to when you get to the pastoral epistles is smaller than the previous one. In other words, they're written from the largest to the smallest, and yet they harmoniously make theological points one after another. And then from there, you get into the pastorals, and it does the same thing. One Timothy is bigger than two Timothy, which is bigger than Titus. And so it's just kind of interesting uh, that and many other patterns that are found in Paul's writings that are based on how they are laid out. And we went through that when we were in the, the book of Acts some years ago, and maybe I'll talk about it at some point. But we're going to do 1 Corinthians. That'll be the next book that we go through. I've got the commentary written up. If you want to follow along, they're online. And um, if you uh, you know want me to email you the notes that I have, which I use, I'll email those to you. Just send me an email, whatever. And uh, you know I, I amended them a little bit for the class, not a lot, but that's available if you want. So you can either follow along online or you can, I can send you the link to that or you, I can send you the, the notes on a Word, Word document, whatever. And um, anyway, what I want to do, I was thinking about this today and what I would like to do before we get into 1 Corinthians is to 
just real quickly go through the structure of dispensationalism. Why are Paul's, just so you know, this guy that's sitting in this chair will not be here next Thursday. Anybody that's here next Thursday, you're on your own, okay? Because it's Thanksgiving, and that's my favorite day of the year, along with Resurrection Day, and I'm going to be having turkey. So, uh, as a matter of fact, a couple friends, which I don't want to give their names without permission, but they sent us a smoked turkey, so I can't wait. Um, my hair's standing up. Just um, I'll send you the, the card. Yes, I will. They're very good. Your house is going to smell like smoked turkey when it yeah. arrives. I'm telling you, they're, they're really good. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Okay, so uh, what I want to do before we go, I, I will try to remember to do this with each book because as we go through books, you know, you forget stuff. And I did not prepare for this today. And so I may not get all the information 100% right or totally inclusive. But I want to go real quickly through the dispensation so you understand why we're in Paul's letters and what this means. There are seven dispensations. Anybody that wants to call out the first one? Innocence. Innocence. Okay, that's your first dispensation is innocence. That goes from anybody? Creation to man's fall. That's right, from creation to the fall. Okay, so uh, it, it, it's a very short time. It was probably a matter of days or maybe even hours. I mean, it, it, we're prone for screwing things up. And so it was very short, but it ended at the fall. And then the next one? Conscience is the next dispensation, S-C-I-E, -S and if I spelled that wrong, just ignore it. Okay, conscience, and uh, that goes from? Okay, the fall to the flood, that's right. All right, F-L-O-O-D. Once again, there's a cataclysm. You had the cataclysm of the fall, you've got the cataclysm of the flood. Okay, after that comes? Government, G-O-V-E-R-N-M-E-N-T. What's that? It's okay. Cheating, by the way. Oh, okay. He's cheating, but that's okay. As long as you got it. Hey, that's all right. So that goes from after the flood, not the beginning of the flood, but from after the flood, it goes, um, actually, it doesn't, it doesn't end at this point. Although um, it, it kind of ended with a, a type of a cataclysm. We're not going to worry about that right now, actually. And I'm going to explain this on another graph here in a minute. I'm just giving you these right now. Uh, but we're going to say right now the government continues on in its basic sense. You'll understand that in a few minutes. But uh, from there, after the government came what? That's, that's right, the promise. And that is, as he noted, to Abraham and to Israel. Okay. But, and I'll show you this on the, the graph as well, but we've got the promise, which is um, to Abraham. All right. That came about in when Abram was called, it was Abram at the time, and then uh, A-B-R, Abram, and then um, he became Abraham. But anyway, it was a promise to him, and that goes, um, it, it, it kind of skips over something, but that goes up until when? The time of the next dispensation is? The law. The law. Okay, that's right. So I, I don't want to say the promise ended, okay, but at the same time, the dispensation of the law overtook it in the sense that Israel is now under the law. And that came through Moses and it goes right up until when? That's right, until the coming of grace. Now, each one of these, um, Moses, it's the law of Moses. All right. And that goes up to the time of grace. But once again, we'll, we'll look at that a little more in detail in a couple minutes. All right. And then from law, obviously, you go to grace, which is also called what? We're sitting in it right now. The what? Church age. Yeah, it's the dispensation of grace. This comes from the grace of Jesus Christ. He shed his blood. 
There's nothing we need to do here. It's totally given here because he did everything here. All right. This was Christ doing the law for us. Okay. That initiated grace. And we'll just let it go with that. It, it's grace. It comes through the new covenant in Christ's blood. All right. And then after that, there is um, one more dispensation. Yeah. Okay. The what? Yeah. yeah. The millennial reign of Christ. Okay. But before we get to the millennial reign of Christ, millennium, millen, I, this chalk is just terrible. Millennium. Okay. All right. Now that's a thousand year reign of Christ, right? Everybody knows that he is literally going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. It says it six times in Revelation chapter 20 in like three pair, three verses. I mean, it's just very quickly. It says a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. There's nothing symbolic about that. There's nothing allegorical about it. It's going to happen. Christ in all of the Old Testament, I mean, all of the prophets said that it was going to happen. It's not an allegory that he is going to rule from Jerusalem. The law will go forth from Zion. I hate to tell you, the church is not Zion. The church is the church. We're all over the world. We're Gentiles. Paul's very clear in the book of Romans. Go back and watch those videos that Israel is not the church. Anybody that says Israel is the church has not done a proper study of that because he never once calls Israel the church. Okay, we've got grace and then we've got the millennium. But before the millennium, something's going to happen. Tribulation. tribulation period right in here is the tribulation period. That is seven years. Okay, so these are the dispensations. Innocence, conscience, government, promise, law, grace. This is where we are right now. We started it in the uh, actually in the book of Acts. Okay, but the epistles which govern the doctrine of that because Acts is not a prescriptive book. Before we go on, what are the five rules, the five major rules of hermeneutics? Is it descriptive? Does it describe something? Descriptive. Is it prescriptive? Does it prescribe something? Always ask yourself this. When you're reading a passage and it says, I was shipwrecked, is that descriptive or prescriptive? It's descriptive. It simply describes that. He's not telling you to go out and get shipwrecked, right? So even Paul, in his letters, which are prescriptive in nature, have descriptive elements to them. Okay, is it prescriptive? Paul says, you know, uh, uh, whatever. What, don't be unequally yoked. Yeah, don't be unequally yoked. Thank you. I had a brain hemorrhage there. Is that descriptive or prescriptive? It's prescriptive. He's prescribing to you something to do. Don't mix these two up. There are uh, three more that you want to remember. The next one is context. What is the context? This is the most important one after the next one. What is the next one? Context. That's right. This one is more important than the previous one, but there is one that's more important than that. Context. That's right. The five rules. Is it descriptive? Is it prescriptive? And what is the context? Context. Context. If you remember those, you are going to have better theology than 99.923% of all people that are in the church today. Most people take the book of Acts and they, they make, instead of descriptive, they make it prescriptive. And they say, okay, Acts says this in Acts chapter 2, we need to do that. Okay, you need to repent and be baptized. You Acts chapter 8, it says something completely different about when we get, if there are baptism verses, and I know there are in Corinthians, we're going to stop that day and we're going to go through baptism again. And when we get to the Holy Spirit, we're going to do the same thing from Acts. How do we know that Acts is not to be used in a prescriptive manner? You just look at it. If you use Acts in a prescriptive manner, you will have completely confused theology. Completely confused because Acts 2 says something different than Acts 8, which says something different than Acts 10 on those two issues. You don't want to do that. So 
These are the dispensations. We want to now take the dispensation of grace, the letters in the dispensation of grace, which come from Paul, because he is the apostle to the, Gentile. the Gentiles. That's right. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. We are the Gentile-led church age, okay? James is writing to the tribes scattered abroad, right? Hebrews is written to the Hebrews. Peter is writing to the pilgrims of the dispersion. They are useful for our instruction just as all scripture is but they are not useful in the same way during this part of the dispensation of grace the gentile-led church age we go by paul's letters and if we go by that we won't have any contradictions in any other part of our theology okay so i've, I've got that let me get out my eraser here and then we've got the seven dispensations we're going to real quickly go through where they fit in and this will only take a couple minutes and then we'll get into the book of 1 Corinthians. But I thought this would be a good way of reminding you why we're in Paul's letters. We come into the timeline. First, we're going to go to the book of Genesis, chapter 9. I think it was Steve, but I was talking to somebody about this on Sunday or maybe during the week. But Genesis chapter 9, it says this. If you understand what is being said here, you will understand where we are in redemptive history right now. Genesis chapter 9, <laughs> it says, um, I'm just going to take you back to verse 20. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, if you want to know who the people of Shem are, if you want to know who the people of Japheth are, and if you want to know who the people of Ham are, all you need to do is go to the Table of Nations, Genesis chapter 10, and it outlines the movement of all of the people in the world to where they are going, okay? My wife is from Ham, okay? The, the Oriental people in Japan, China. In other words, uh, I've said this before just recently, the Chinese are known as, when we talk about American relations with Chinese, the Chinese people, Sino, Sino uh, American Sino relationships. Well, that sin, that name, Sino, comes from Sin, which is a son of Canaan. So we know that. All you have to do is follow the table of nations, those people, and you will see where the people have moved around the world. Okay? Um, believe it or not, the Indian people, the India Indian people, are actually sons of Japheth. Okay? Even though they're dark-skinned, they, that's where they travel from. The people of Iran are of Japheth. They're not of Shem. And that's why there's this conflict between the Iranians and the Arabs, is because they're a different group of people that they've never been able to commingle in uh, the normal way. Okay? So, if you understand who these people are and where they've gone around the world, you'll understand this better. But go back and watch the Genesis 10 sermons. It says, <clears throat> Then he drank uh, of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Verse 24. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done. Who did it to him? Ham. It was Ham. Ham, he knew what his younger son had done. Okay, now before I go on, we'll get to that in a minute. Excuse me, just a minute on that. Um, so Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, cursed be Canaan. Why didn't he, I said this to somebody just recently, why didn't he curse his son Ham? Did the father respond? 
No, because his son did it. It's good, good answer. It's not what why, but it, he already made a was, promise. Uh, the previous one was blessed. That's right. The three sons had already been blessed. God blessed Noah and his sons. It would be inappropriate for Noah to curse a son that had been blessed. So instead of cursing his youngest son, he turned around and cursed his son, his youngest son. And so it says, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. Now here we go. These next words here are going to define everything that happens in the rest of the Bible. This is a prophecy. Okay, this is Noah prophesying, and the Lord included these words in his word for a specific reason. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So he's put Canaan under Shem. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So Canaan is a servant to the Japhethites and to the uh, Semites. Okay, so we have... Noah has taken, and he said, um, uh, blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and may Canaan be a servant. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem is giving Shem the spiritual blessing. He has now received it. He is the one that is put in preeminence, and spiritually, he is the line in which, uh, the, and we've seen this in the world. It is the people of Shem who have carried the message, even if they have wrong, which Islam does, it's wrong, but they are one of the large monotheistic religions in the world, right? Of course, we have the monotheistic religion of Judaism, or I'm talking about biblical Judaism, which came out of the Bible, all right? So we have these this uh, spiritual heritage from these people that came from Shem, all right? And then, of course, Jesus came from that line, and he established the new covenant, which right now is led by Gentiles. Anyway, but the next line says, may God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. So that's what I want to get into. That is showing us what's going to happen in the redemptive history of the world. So we have from Genesis, we've got all the way through to a certain point where it is all Shem. All Shem. Okay? That point right here, and we're going to start with the dispensation of uh, innocence, is described in the law. We've got conscience, which is described in the law. We've got government, which is described in the law. And we've got promise, which is described in the law. And then we've got the law. That's all from Shem, right? Everybody know, see that? This is all written from the sons of Shem. They have carried on this spiritual heritage, okay? And then we get, all of a sudden, we get to the dispensation of grace, okay? In the dispensation of grace, this is going to get a little confusing because I want to lay it out properly. We've got from Genesis all the way to Malachi. Is We'll go over here. This is Malachi. That is the Old Testament, right? 39 books of the Old Testament. They are all law. Even though they're not, the law actually is at the time of Moses, but they're written under the law. Moses received Genesis, Exodus before the law, but they are still a part of the law because they're what's received by Moses. So we're going to, this entire time is covering the time of the law, explaining what happened in these other dispensations. Then we come like to, to... Put the M up there instead of a L, L on, on the, L. Uh, on the top, on top line there. Where? Up here? Yeah. Uh, oh, Moses, law. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. All right. Okay. So we, yeah, we've got law. Okay. Thank you. And then Malachi is here. Okay. So this is from Genesis to Malachi. And then from there, we have the New Testament, which is uh, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, okay? These are all the synoptic gospels. I'm going to put a little S-Y-N there just so we know they're synoptic gospels. Those are all synoptic gospels. 
Matthew is written describing Jesus, the king of the Jews, okay? And that is um, king of the Jews. And then Mark is the servant, okay? And that is, this one is written to the Jewish people specifically. And then we have Mark, which is the servant, which is written specifically to the sons of Ham. Okay, so we'll say Shem here, S. Okay, and then we have Luke, which is describing Jesus as the son of man. Okay, and that is specifically written to the son. So you got Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Luke was a son of Japheth. He was a Greek. Okay, so this I know this is a little bit confusing, but maybe it'll make some sense to you in a few minutes. Then all of a sudden we come up to the book of John, which is not one of the synoptic gospels. I'm going to move the G over a little more, the dispensation of grace, although it kind of fits over here. John is a transitionary book. Okay, it is written Jesus as the son of God. It doesn't follow the, uh, the uh, that's S-O-N. I know it doesn't look like it, but... Yeah, it doesn't follow the, uh, the the same pattern as the synoptics, but there's a reason for that. It is a melding of what is going on in the law and in the dispensation of grace. In other words, when you read John 3.16, that is written to everybody, okay? God so loved the world, and it's speaking of the cosmos, the world, every people in the world, okay? Now, obviously, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all speaking to everybody after the resurrection, because he has established the new covenant in his blood. Okay, I'm talking about what the contents of those books are. All right, the contents before the resurrection was written to the Jews in fulfillment of law, showing these different groups of people, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, that it was written, Jesus is fulfilling the law on our behalf. That is not the purpose of John. John is a melding of showing the law into the time of Jesus granting his grace. Okay, from there, you come to the book of Acts. All right. Acts is divided up very, very specifically. We went through it in the Acts study, but it goes from 1 through 12 and then 13 through 28. Okay, who is Acts 1 through 12 written about? Peter. Peter, that's right. All right, and then the second half, who is it written about? Paul. Paul. Very clear. If you look at the patterns, I've got them in the computer, I can send them to you if you want. You look Peter does this, Paul does this. Peter raises a dead guy, Paul raises a dead guy. He mentions silver and gold, he mentions silver and gold. He does this, he does, it happens, there is a pattern. Again and again and again and again. It is showing the transition from the apostle to the Jews to the apostle to the, it's showing the transition. The patterns in Acts are absolutely astonishing. They, they, they fill the book of Acts. And if you look at them in this manner, you understand what God is doing. He's showing us the transition from Jew to Gentile. It starts where? In Jerusalem. It starts in Jerusalem. It ends in Rome, right? And guess what? The next book is Romans, okay? And then you go through Paul's 13 letters. It ends with Philemon. And then from there, you come into the book of Hebrews, all right? Once you come into Hebrews, you've got all of these, Romans, Galatians, one, or 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus and Philemon are all written to, they're written to the church, but all of those are, guess what? Gentiles, and they're all sons of Japheth, every one of them. So here, all of this here is the spiritual heritage of Shem. Everything that you're seeing from here, 
all the way up until this point right here is all Shem. John becomes a merging of those two. Shem along with Japheth. Acts shows that transition taking place literally in church history. And then Paul comes in with Japheth. And all of these, the Romans are Japhethites. The Galatians are Japhethites. The Corinthians are Japhethites. All of these are written to sons of Japheth. Okay. And then after that, you've got Hebrews, you've got James, you've got one, two, and three, John, uh, one through, what's that? Peter oh, thank you. One and two, Peter. Thank you. All right. That is all once again, Shem. And then you've got one, two, and three, John. And that is emerging just like this is emerging here. Where is John? It's emerging here. It's emerging here. And then after you, that, you get Jude. Jude is a final warning to the people of the world, right? It's, it actually very closely mirrors the book of 2 Peter, very closely. But it's a final warning, contending for the faith once delivered. And then after that, you come to the book of Revelation and you come with the same pattern. You come with the first three um, chapters and they are written to who? I, I've, I've been seeing this all over Facebook lately. Really? It's it, all over Facebook. People are saying it's not written at all to the church. They're saying church isn't included in the book of Revelation. I, I, I don't know what's the matter with people. It says to the seven churches. It's very clear what's going on. I've been seeing this popping up all over and people, they don't study their Bible. They don't understand what's going on. Revelation, I've got to continue this down here. Revelation one through three is very clearly written to the churches. That, you know, it goes back to that stupid thing that happened two years ago on September 23rd when the rapture was supposed to happen. And everybody got this thing in their head that the church isn't the bride of Christ when it's very clear that we're being prepared as a virgin, right? I, I, you're to be betrothed as a virgin. What is it? Um, you know the, the verse I'm thinking of. Anyway. Chase virgin. Yeah, yeah, chase virgin. That is a, a bride being prepared for a husband. The church is a bride, okay? After that, you come to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. What does it say in Revelation 4, verse 1? I heard a voice saying, come up here. That is the rapture of the church. And then from 4-2 until 19-10, you have got everything written about this period. Oh, I've already erased it. The tribulation. Every single word of it is about the tribulation, which is focused on Israel. And after that, 1911, guess what? Jesus comes back with who? With the church. That's right. All of a sudden, you've got the final melding of what's going on there, going into the millennial reign of Christ. Whatever Christ is going to do during that time will be a part of it in some way or another. But this is what's going on, is that he said that Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem. This is a tent. I'll put a little top on it so you can see it's a tent. This is a tent. And then all of a sudden, Japheth comes along, and he has a tent. He's dwelling within the tents because this here begins another tent of Shem. He is dwelling within the tents of Shem. This is where we are in redemptive history right now, is the Gentile-led church age, specifically the Japhethites, okay? Who is it that has carried the word of God for the past 2,000 years? More than anybody else, the Japhethites. They are the ones that have analyzed the Bible. The great scholars of church history have come from Japheth. They have been the one to translate the Bible, send people all around the world translating the Bible. And guess what? Shem, it says, I'm sorry, Canaan, it says, will be his servant, right? And guess what they've done? They've been a servant to the church all of this time. All around the world, they've been out there helping the Japhethites as they go out and get the message around. Shem has been almost completely ignored during this entire time right here because he is where? He's in punishment. 
the sons of Shem did not accept Jesus. They went into punishment, and then eventually, hate to tell replacement theologians, Shem is going to be back. We are dwelling in the tents of Shem. There are tents of Shem, and the church is dwelling in them. This is the importance of understanding Paul's writings, is because Paul's writings tell us what to do during this dispensation. All of this is for our information, for our edification, for our instruction, for training the man of God in righteousness. I know I misquoted that verse. Don't say it. Anyway, but this is all for that. This is all for that as well. But this is our instruction right here. Everybody got that? This is what the Lord did through Noah to show us redemptive history. And this is the pattern that the Bible follows. It's I didn't go through everything here. I skipped a lot of stuff. I'll talk about why um, uh, the uh, dispensation of promise. We'll, we'll go back to uh, government. Government right here goes all the way across. The governments of the world that are not in Christ go all the way across until the tribulation period. Okay? that They just remain out here. Okay, the governments of the world are still going on. God created the nations. He broke them apart. He sent them around the world, and he says he did it according to the sons of Israel. The sons of Israel in the Song of uh, uh, Moses, Deuteronomy 32, I think it is, he says he divided the nations according to the sons of Israel. How many sons of Israel went down to Egypt? Seventy. How many nations are in the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10? 70. He divided them according to the sons of Israel. These governments are ongoing. This is why, I'll take a little diversion right here. This is why the movement that is going on and it's being spearheaded by the Pope right now is anti-Christian. It is anti-God. It's because God set these nations up. He intends for them to be nations speaking their languages and we are breaking down borders opposing God in order to build a one world government, a one world religion, a one world economy. That is all anti-Christ. All of what's going on in the world right now is what's happening. But this is, the government is still ongoing, and the promise actually didn't end with the law. It just got temporarily put on hold by the law to come to grace. So the promise leads to grace. Abraham, in Genesis 15, 6, he said, to, to Abraham, look up at the stars in the sky, thus shall your descendants be. And it says, Abraham believed God, and he credited it to him for righteousness. And that's what Paul writes about in his letters, that this promise is fulfilled here in Jesus Christ. So that's why we're in this right now. I know I've skipped over way too much, but that's a very short little breakdown of how the Bible is structured so that we can know that what we are pursuing here is this. This is the church age doctrine. Everything else, and once again, the book of Acts, I want to highlight this with a different color. The book of Acts should never be used for prescriptive doctrine. If you use the book of Acts as a prescriptive document, your theology is screwed up and it will remain screwed up. That's all there is to it. It is not a pre... Even Acts 15, which makes prescriptions for the early church, is not prescriptive in the sense that Paul writes about it and he explains further. He further defines what we are to do. They talk about strangled animals, eating meat of strangled animals and blood and all that. Paul will describe why and that becomes our marching order. So even Acts 15, which has prescriptions, is not really prescriptive for the church age. It was simply an early church uh, mandate so that people wouldn't get off on tangents and especially not harm the uh, sensibilities of the Jews 
who at that time were struggling with the issue of the Messiah. Okay, we won't get any further in that, but do not use Acts as prescriptive. Okay, remember those five rules. Is it descriptive? Is it prescriptive? In context, context, context. Always remember the context and you will have better theology. If you take Matthew 24, no one knows the day and the hour, and you insert that and say that's for the rapture, you have bad theology because it's not speaking to the church, it's not in this dispensation in any way, shape, or form, okay? The synoptic gospels are to Shem, okay? Where did I put that? All right, uh, yeah, here it is. They are to Shem, but they're describing. That's why if you give the book of Matthew to a Jew, they may come to Christ. If you give them the book of Mark, they're not gonna know what you're talking about because it's not geared for that mentality, that type of breeding that is in that person. The book of Mark is specifically written with the sons of Ham in mind. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Just the way they're listed in Genesis, that's the way they're listed here. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You give this to a son of Ham, it's very quick paced. It's just geared to the way that their minds are geared. And if you want somebody to come to Christ that is a son of Japheth, you give them the book of Luke and they'll probably come to Christ. Not probably because everybody's different, but they will understand it better than these other two because it is geared towards their mentality. It is geared towards that higher thinking that the Greeks had and that has carried on. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with any other group of people. I want you to understand that curses are removed in Christ. If you are in Christ, it doesn't matter if you're Shem, Ham, or Japheth. And so much for the Hebrew roots movement where they elevate everything Shem above everything else. That is incorrect. If you are in Christ, you are on an evil, even level with everybody else. But gearing these books for the different people of the world will help you understand why they respond to those books positively or negatively. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you this and then we'll go into the 1 Corinthians. R.C. Sproul was speaking one time, and I, I may have said this during this class. He was speaking one time and he said that he had a couple show up at his church. And he got talking to him and he eventually asked, well, how'd you meet the Lord? They're both Jews. They're both non-believing Jews. They have no instruction in Jesus at all, zero. And one of them, this happened in one night of their life. One was traveling one place and one was going another. I don't remember, maybe they were a doctor and a lawyer, whatever. One of them traveled to one place and he was in the, the uh, hotel. He picked up the Bible and he went to the book of Matthew. Geared towards Shem and guess what happened? He received Christ. And he got back and he says, how am I going to tell my wife? Well, guess what? That night she was in a hotel room and she picked up the book of Hebrews and she came to Christ. And they became believers in the Messiah because those books are geared towards them. The book of Hebrews is, I, I will say this and then I'll sit down. <laughs> if you come to Christ and you want to know proper theology, really sound theology, yes, all of Paul's writings will get you there. But specifically, you should read Romans and read Romans and read Romans. Read it eight times in a row and then go and read the book of Hebrews. Read it eight or nine times in a row. Those two books are going to give you a foundation of Christianity that you're not going to get any other way than simply absorbing them. And you have to just stay in those. The rest of Paul's writings will give you valid information. That's why I love Galatians. I, I love them all. But if you go to the book of Romans and the book of Hebrews, your theology is going to be sound. That's why I implore you, if you've not been reading the daily devotionals in Hebrews, read them. You're going to understand what is going on and you're gonna have explained to you things that you've probably never thought of before. It, it, it's marvelous. Anyway, we'll get into the book of 1 Corinthians now. Uh, I hope this helped a little bit. Yes. What, what, what's amazing about the Bible, aside from content and, and messaging, all that stuff is that 
when they took all the books, put them together. It's astonishing. Well, what's so astonishing about it is that John, which does, you know, the gospel, is actually written beyond um, Hebrew. Yeah, that's right. It's written much later. Way later. Yeah, like, and yet they include it in the yeah. right place, mm -hmm. in the right position in the Bible. And the funny thing, the Old Testament is 39 books, right? Well, in the Hebrew Bible, it's not. They take kings and they put them together. They take Samuel and they put them together. They put Chronicles and they put them together. And they're not in the same order. It doesn't go from Genesis to Malachi. It goes from Genesis to Chronicles. Okay? They're not sure why the church changed the order and split these books up. But they did, and they fit the theology perfectly. You understand the coming of Christ much better the way that it is laid out in the Christian Bible. And then you've got, it was written from the time of Moses all the way until the time of Revelation. That's a span of 1600 years. It's 40 or so different authors, okay? Every one of them has a united message. It is a unified message. Every one of them shows the fingerprints of God, and yet they show the unique writing style of each one of the authors. If you pick up one book and you say, well, Moses wrote that, how do you know? Because I know, I, he also wrote this one. This was received by the Lord other than the fact that it says Moses wrote it 4,000 times, but you would know. When you read Jeremiah, you know that he wrote Jeremiah, and you can say, well, chapter 23 is written by the same guy as chapter 4, but it's not the same as the book of Esther, right? You know that it's individual styles, and yet it has the same harmonious message that goes from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It is one continuous thread. It was written in three different languages. Anybody? You're talking Hebrew. About the Old Hebrew. What? The Old Greek, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. and Aramaic. That's right. You've got three languages, okay? It's written over a, all of these different countries. It's written outside of Israel. It's written in various places. It all makes a unified whole. If you take out one book, the whole thing unravels. It is a marvelous, marvelous masterpiece of God's wisdom. Anyway, so there you go. Yes, we've got, uh, yes. Quickly, um, for the Vietnamese people, that would be uh, Pam. I would say probably Ham. I'd have to go and look, but I would say probably Ham is correct. So, uh, the book of, uh, Mark. Mark. Yeah, if you're going to give them one, they would understand it more. That doesn't mean that there aren't people that won't understand Luke, that won't understand, you know. But these are generalizations that we are wired in a certain way. We all know this. There, You know, I listen to the NIV Live every single day, okay? And they have readers from all over. I mean, they, they got guys reading them. They've got the girls reading the Psalms now. Okay. They've got white guys reading it. They've got black guys reading it. They've got Hispanics reading it. And you, you can always tell different voices. There's nothing racist about that. That's what God has made a certain way. I know when I hear a black voice, I know when I hear an Asian voice, even if they were raised in America, you just know these things. One of the Psalms today was written by a lady and she had a Hispanic accent and it was marvelous. I, I just almost zapped it back and listened to it again, but I'm going forward. Anyway, uh, if you haven't been listening to your NIV Live Bible, plug it in and listen to it. It is really wonderful. And we got two more from Tom in the mail this morning. It rained last night. They left it out in the rain. That box was totally soaking and nothing was ruined. Everything inside was fine. It, it, it didn't soak through. But if you want an NIV Live Bible, there's two of them. All I would ask is if you take one, please send me an email so I can forward it on to him thanking him because he sends these things to us out of the goodness of his heart. That's his ministry is to send out these things. So please thank him. You had one question. We'll get started. Two. two. This is on YouTube today. What? You're... Your talk here. Yeah, we're live. Okay. Right and if, if they email you, you can send 
from your notes someplace, all this stuff? No, they're going to have to write this down. I don't have this written anywhere. I did that out of my head. I have a little bit of it. You know, when I did the, the Noah sermon, that's when I realized what was going on. That it, it, once I read that and I was doing my study, I realized, well, the structure of the Bible matches what Noah prophesied. And so this is the only way you're going to have this. One of these days, if I get time, I'll make a chart out of it. No, I don't have any of that in, in a chart. It's just out of my, and like I said, I didn't do a very good job of it today. It's a more thorough one in the past, but I'll try to do this once a book just so people understand. So this is on Wonderful One? Uh, you mean the it's video? Today, today yeah. Uh, it'll be on the Superior Word website and it'll be on YouTube. On yeah, YouTube. yeah, it, it, it's, it's live and I will publish it and it will be on YouTube uh, you know, in just a little while. Anyway, you had a second question. No, I have to it. That was both. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> What's the title? Um, send me an email, and I, I don't, I don't have a title oh. yet. It'll be one Corinthians chapter one through verse one through whatever, and I don't have a title. Oh. I, I go home and I do the editing. That's why I like to leave here right at six thirty, is because I got a ton of work to do before I even eat dinner. And look at she's sitting back there thinking dinner now. Oh. <laughs> okay, um, okay. So go ahead. One Corinthians one verse one. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brothers Sosthenes. 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 That's okay. Is that the whole thing? Yes, it is. Okay. okay, here we go. This is one verse one. These are my comments from a, 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 you know, a writing that I did every day during the writing of the book of 1 Corinthians. So I read my notes rather than going off the top of my head because one, you know I'm not very eloquent. And two, I tend to say things... I, I mean to say Peter and I'll say Paul. When I use just my brain, it never works properly. So I, I go by my notes and it, it'll help a lot of the confusion. It will otherwise, did, did you mean Peter? I don't want to go through that. So, okay. 1 Corinthians is comprised of, anybody know how many verses? Everybody should know this. Why don't you know how many verses are in 1 Corinthians? 437 verses in 16 chapters. It took 437 days for me to do the commentary on this book. Okay, this makes it four verses longer than the epistle to the Romans. Actually, if you look at it, though, Romans is a longer epistle in, in its writing. And that's why I say they go from the largest to the smallest, but it is four longer in, in what do you call it, um, uh, verses. Um, a few things should be noted about the letter. Its composition is dated A.D. 59. It is generally directed toward proper Christian conduct and the avoidance of heresy and division within the church. And boy, are we going to see a lot of that. A lot of division in the church. He has to warn against it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in particular is a very important chapter to remember. It's, a, it's only this long. It doesn't take any time to read it. If you know the content of it, and if you know what is being said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you will avoid a lot of pitfalls. Okay, but... Um, Paul established the church in Corinth during his missionary travels, but it continued to have many problems with adjusting to proper conduct, especially because of being in a pagan environment, okay? If there's one theme of the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, it's probably this church is messed up. I mean, that's just the way it is. It, they're a dysfunctional church, and I will say this now before we go any further. He never questions the salvation of an individual in that church, ever. He says, expel one of them. He says, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved on the day of Christ Jesus. He's saying, let him go out and drink his life to death. He's not going to lose his salvation, but he's going to lose his joy and probably his life in the process. And he never questions that man's faith. And he says, it's something that even the pagans don't do. 
It was the most horrible thing he could think of. He never questions the salvation of any of the people in this or any epistle. When he calls them a brother, he assumes that they are a brother and they are a brother forever. Okay, so um, this letter is then written to address these problems and to give guidance in these and other church-related issues. Paul begins with an introduction to confirm the letters of authenticity or to confirm the letter's authenticity. In it, he identifies himself and his position and from whence his authority arises. He says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay, so he's identified himself, he's identified his calling and who that calling pertains to. As Paul established the church, and I'm talking about the church in Corinth, as he established the church, they would know him and hopefully take heed to whatever issues he would address, all right? To ensure that they hadn't forgotten, he identifies his title. He was called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. The title apostle is something which is incorrectly applied in the church today. I think I talked about this at the end of Romans, didn't I, just a week or two ago? Maybe not, okay? The apostles were only those who personally witnessed the work of Jesus Christ, all right? I'm talking about an apostle of Jesus Christ because apostle means sent one. If you're an apostle of Jesus Christ, that means you were sent by the church, right? No, you were sent by Jesus Christ. So an apostle of Jesus Christ is someone sent by Jesus Christ. So for somebody to call themselves an apostle today, it, one, it's an unnecessary title to throw on yourself. There's no need because you're either uh, a, a person in the church or you're a deacon or you're a pastor or a minister or whatever. But, you know, a church can send somebody. I'm an apostle of the superior word. But why would you do that? I just represent the superior word. Why do you need a title for that? An apostle of Jesus Christ bears authority because Jesus Christ sent them. All right. But whatever. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, he uh, was to ensure they hadn't forgotten that he includes the title okay um, the apostles were only those who personally witnessed the work of jesus christ paul is called as an exception to this because he only came to know christ after the ascension he was not there with his earthly ministry although he may have actually seen him you know he may have been there at the crucifixion he may because it was at the passover time he may have been there we don't know but he did not know christ he did not know of him other than this guy is no good we need to squashed the message about him and he did a very good job of that he had a zeal for what he did until he met the lord after the resurrection okay so he will he was specifically he will specifically note this calling in 1 corinthians 15 verse 8 okay we'll get to that and it won't be too long the apostolic age ended with the completion of the bible and the death of the last apostle does everybody understand that okay you are an apostle of Jesus Christ if you personally were commissioned by Jesus Christ. The apostolic age then ended with the last apostle. When the last apostle died, or when he finished his last work, the apostolic age ended. There is no such thing as continued apostolic uh, leadership in a church, at, such as the Roman church claims. They claim that they have a succession of apostolic authority. The Episcopal Church tried that. We have the apostolic authority because we have laid the hands on for all of these years. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. An apostle of Jesus Christ is someone commissioned by Jesus Christ. When the word amen was put at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 22, verse 21, that was it. We no longer get apostolic revelation from God. You see people, all the, I read one on Facebook today, somebody posted this thing and talking about how he's divinely inspired and he made a prophecy about blah, blah. Don't listen to these people. 
Those people are crazy. They have no authority to add to the word of God. They are not receiving divine revelation. I don't believe that. If you believe that, that's fine. Believe whatever you want. I do not believe that we need anything beyond what is written in this book. Why? Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God. We have the word. We don't need to expect anymore. Isn't this sufficient, or is it? I, you know, you have to ask yourself that question. I believe that this word is sufficient. I don't believe in prophecies. I don't believe in conspiracy theories. I, I just, you know, people need to hold to sound theology, and they need to hold to sound thinking in their lives. And there's way too much of that not going on lately. But anyway, the title apostle is incorrectly applied. And as I said, the apostolic age ended with the completion of the Bible and the death of the last apostle. I don't mind if people disagree with me. Okay, I have no problem with that. But this is what I teach. I teach these things and I believe them. Okay, if you want to be wrong, you can believe something else. I like to say that. Whatever. I'm wrong in a lot of things I know. But this is what I believe and this is why I teach these things. Being an apostle then had a special significance and only came about by a specific calling by Christ himself. I'm going to take you to 1 Corinthians 15 so that we can see that right now. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15 verse 7. I'll take you back a little bit. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and on the third day he rose again, on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he was seen by St. Cephas, and then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, all of whom the greater part remained. That right there, that verse right there is one of the strongest testaments to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he wrote this at a time when anybody could have read that letter and said, you know what, I was there, and I can tell you that's not true. He said 500 people saw them. Most of them are still alive. Some of them have died. And not one person in history has written a letter that refutes that. Not one. He gave the witness and nobody stepped forward and said that wasn't true. Okay, so <clears throat> verse 7. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. So the apostles were known to Jesus. They were called by Jesus. And he was an exception to that rule. But he was became known by Jesus or of Jesus. And he was commissioned by Jesus. It was just after the resurrection. But he admitted it right there. So anyway, um, next he identifies where his calling is derived. It was through the will of God. All right. The story of Paul's conversion is recorded in the book of Acts, and it would have been widely known among the churches that he established. People would have said, that's the guy that used to persecute the church, and he even talks about that. His authority was obvious, but he is calling it again to mind in order to establish the basis for the bold statements and directions that he would make throughout this letter. Okay, And he's going to make a lot of them. He's going to be very firm about what he says. He needs to right now at the beginning establish his apostolic authority. God's will is something that occurs in his eternal state outside of time itself. We've talked about the nature of God. God isn't in time. God doesn't change. He doesn't get angry the way the Bible says. We change in relation to him. God does not change. If God changes in any way, shape, or form, it's not the God of the Bible. Okay? I'm not talking about the human side of Jesus. I'm talking about the divine nature. There is no change in him. He created and because he created everything that is in creation came after okay that means he is before it there can be no change in him because if there is there's time associated with that change and it's not the god of the bible okay so 
occurred outside of time. Paul was specifically chosen to carry the message of Christ to the Gentile people of the world, right there, to the Gentile people of the world, specifically writing to the sons of Japheth, all right, Corinthians and Ephesians and Colossians, they're all sons of Japheth or areas where Japheth ruled, okay? So it is his letters which establish church age doctrine and they are prescriptive in nature. As I said, when he says, in a couple of his letters, I went out and I was shipwrecked or I was uh, stoned or whatever. He's not asking you to go out and get stoned, okay? He's not asking you to go out and get shipwrecked. Those are descriptive. But his letters, the totality of them is prescriptive in nature. He is writing instruction for the church. So always ask yourself when you're reading the Bible, even Paul's letters, is this describing something or is it prescribing something? Because he may refer to something that happened in the past and he's not actually prescribing you to do that thing. Okay, so, um, but in a whole, they are prescriptive in nature. Ignoring, diminishing the importance of, or mishandling Paul's letters will inevitably lead to sound, unsound doctrine and even to heresy. Okay, I know I've said this before, but we'll go through it very quickly. Bad doctrine is something that will not keep, will not keep a person from being saved. I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. I can defend that. I've done it on a uh, uh, video. If you want to watch it, I'll send it to you. It's very easy to find that one. I know the name of it and where it's at. Okay, but pre-tribulation rapture. Somebody else believes in a mid-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation rapture. Is that heresy or is that bad doctrine? Bad doctrine. Bad doctrine. Okay, either I have bad doctrine and they're correct or they have bad doctrine and I'm correct, but it doesn't affect salvation at all not in any way shape or form to believe in a different timing of the rapture a heresy is different a heresy will keep the next guy from being saved a heretic can be a saved person he can have called on jesus he can believe in in uh the death burial and resurrection of jesus and be saved and then later in his walk he gets bad information or he teaches bad information and he passes that on to somebody about the nature of christ and that person will never be saved. That is the difference between bad doctrine and a heresy. And way too often people say, well, you're a heretic over something that has nothing to do with heresy. So be observant in when somebody uses the term heretic. And if they're wrong, correct them. That has nothing to do with salvation. If it has to do with salvation, I'm talking about things like the uh, virgin birth. If Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, that affects people's salvation. I guarantee it. All right. The deity and manhood of Christ. He is God. He is man. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is a thing that will bring about heresy. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient atonement of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe in that and you teach somebody that Christ's blood is not all-sufficient for your sins, that guy is never going to call on the correct Jesus, okay? You may be saved, but that person is not going to be saved by that. There are about seven or eight things that are actual heresy within the church. One of them is reapplying the law of Moses. If you tell people that they need to observe this and that under the law of Moses, that person may never come to the grace of Jesus Christ because he's still trying to work his way to heaven. Be careful about what you teach, okay? James 3.1, those who teach are going to be held to a stricter authority. They will be judged more strictly. Be careful, all right? That doesn't mean be scared and don't go out and teach. Teach what you know, and if you make an error, then fess up to the Lord about it and say, Lord, I'm not going to make that error again. Go forth in his good graces, okay? But, um, so it's, uh, his letters establish church age doctrine. They're prescriptive. 
Paul is such an important figure that hidden pictures of him and his ministry are actually seen in the book of Genesis. If you watch those old sermons, you'll see one or two of them that are pulled out directly that speak of the Apostle Paul. God's calling upon his life, meaning Paul, and ministry carry the authority of God, and what Paul writes is divinely inspired, as all scripture is, okay? How do we know that it is? Well, first, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, go ahead, Burke, you can read it if you get to it before I do. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable, fruit, correction, uh, whatever. Okay, yeah, that's right. That, okay, well, then I'll read it just to make sure we have it down. It says here, um, uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, you're right, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, so now he said that all scripture is inspired by God, and then Peter says of Paul, he says, hang on a second here, um, chapter, three. chapter three, oh, I meant the book of John, that doesn't help at all. It says here, um, uh, let me find this, um, verse 14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable uh, unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. He says Paul's letters are on the authority of scripture. So Paul has said that all scripture is divinely inspired. Peter says that Paul's letters are on that authority. Hence, Paul's letters are divinely inspired. They are scripture. And we knew this at the time of Peter. Okay. So don't make the error that, that people do. They want to diminish the writings of Paul. They want to take them out because it harms their theology in the rapture or in, you know, the Sabbath observance or some other thing that is their pet peeve. And Paul blows them out of the water. And so what do they do? They either ignore Paul or they dismiss his letters or they say that they're not, you know, on the same level as the Jewish authors or whatever. I mean, it's just it goes on and on. Paul is our doctrine for the church age. OK, so. It says, um, let's see here, um, God's calling upon his life and his ministry carry the authority of God. Finally, in this verse, Paul states that the letter is from him and Sosthenes, our brother. Sosthenes is mentioned in Acts 18, verse 17. Once the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth, he became a disciple of Christ through Paul's ministry. Paul mentions him to add weight to his letter. He would have been one of the very first converts in Corinth, and being the synagogue's ruler, he would have been well-versed in Old Testament theology. Very important point that he added Sosthenes into his introduction to the Corinthians. And for this reason, he was an excellent person to cite in the introduction. It is also possible that Sosthenes was acting as Paul's scribe. All right, just as in Romans Tertius, who is mentioned in Romans 16.22, Paul probably had a scribe write as he dictated the letter. As a synagogue ruler, Sosthenes would have certainly been a competent person to act as a scribe. He would be familiar with how to carefully handle the pen in important matters such as this. Life, life application. In the church, we have things that feel are right or wrong, and we often speak out and act on those issues in a prescriptive manner. But what we feel is irrelevant. When somebody says, I think, 
It is irrelevant. The only thing that matters when you're talking about theology is what the Bible says. And one of the most common things that you hear during a conversation about theology with people is, I think, or I feel. That is irrelevant. It doesn't matter at all what you think or what you feel. The only thing that matters is what the Word of God says. That is it. So um, the only thing that matters in the church is uh, what God has prescribed for us. And the doctrine of the church during this dispensation is what Paul has laid out in his epistles. The book of 1 Corinthians is a carefully detailed letter which addresses many important issues. Make sure to study, contemplate, and apply his directives to your church and personal life. I will tell you that when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in particular, we'll probably have a bunch of people that are very angry. I don't care. This is what Paul wrote. These are his words, and they're not to be diminished, and they're not to be spoken against just because somebody disagrees with what Paul says. Yes. Can I throw in there sure. 1 Corinthians, I mean, Romans 16.25? Yeah, go ahead, read it. You know that now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the yes. teaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret before the world began. Absolutely. To, that adds to the weight of the authority of what he is saying, the revelation of the mystery. Very good. Thank you. Thank sure. you very much. Yes. Paul is saved in Acts 9. Right. He gives a detailed report of his conversion to the Jews. Right. In chapter 22. In 26, he talks to the Gentiles, Agrippa and Festus. So he covers the ground for both of them. But That's right. Yet, you know. That's, they were fully aware of his yeah. doctrine. They were fully aware of yeah. his range. Very good. 100%. Very well said. All right. Um, one, two. One, two. Hang on a second here. Oh, guess what? Yeah, no. Okay, go ahead. One, two. Go ahead. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ their Lord and ours. Good job. That's very close to this one. Different wording, but that's okay. I, I thought that I had my things out of order and I was going to have to stop and oh, no. look for it, but I didn't. I just put the thing down. All right. <clears throat> After his introduction, Paul makes his addressees known by starting with, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Corinth is on an isthmus. Everybody knows what an isthmus is, a promontory of land, okay? And its location was on a very narrow portion of it. Because of this, a highway was forged from one side of it to another, and boats were literally dragged across it to save them the time of sailing all the way around the land, okay? And they still have that there today. You can see it where they dragged the boats and all of this and where they did all of that work thousands of years ago. Anyway, um, because of this strategic location, Corinth became a well-known and valuable city in the Roman Empire. The Church of God is a term which implies that this was an established church founded on God's working in and through the person of Jesus Christ. It was Paul who established the church, as is noted beginning in Acts 18, verse 1. He preached his message, and those who received it are those, as he says in this verse, those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. This means that they were set apart from those around them as holy, sanctified, set apart as holy. Being sanctified in this way means that they secure in Christ they are secure in Christ, and they have received their heavenly position. Everybody got that? When you're sanctified by God, you are set apart as holy. You have received your heavenly position. Let me read you what it says in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Hang on. 
verse 4. Here we go. It says there, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. Guess what? That's already done in us. If you are a believer in Christ, you are sitting in heavenly places according to God's mind. It is a done deal. All right. Anybody that says that you can lose your salvation is not thought through the verses of the Bible well. That's all there is to it. There are verses which are very complicated, and there are verses which are completely abused. Quite often you'll hear somebody say, well, um, you know, uh, if you don't pay attention, I'm going to come and take your lampstand from you. Ever heard that one for a loss of salvation? Church. What's the problem with that? Church. Yeah, church. lampstand has a church. A person doesn't have a lampstand, right? Lampstand is given to the church. It says that right in the, the introduction in the book of Revelation. So there are verses which people completely misuse, and then there are some which are difficult. All of them are reconcilable if the context context is maintained, okay? Regardless of our earthly walk after salvation, and this, you know, I've had people that have been very upset when I say this. I've had people that have blocked me on Facebook because of, I'll say it. Doesn't bother me that people do that. When somebody comes to Jesus Christ, here in Papua New Guinea, right? Ray and Jess Willett go over and they establish a church in Papua New Guinea. And those people have believed the message of the gospel, right? They're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's all the theology they have. Because the next day, Ray and Jess have to go back to America for whatever reason. Okay? And that church is there. They don't have any theology at all except that they were saved by Jesus Christ. They knew that somebody came. He died for their sins. They believed that. They believed that he was buried and he came out of the grave. Are they saved or are they not? Saved. Okay. A Mormon church moves into that same area and they say, guess what? We're going to teach you the truth about the Bible. Will those people lose their salvation when they are taught bad doctrine? No. no. But guess what? Because it's heresy that they are teaching, the next generation will never be saved. Does everybody understand that? Because I have people that adamantly say that if they get into a Mormon church and they start following Mormon doctrine, they're going to lose their salvation. They have not handled God's word properly. I, I will tell you that right now. Those people are saved despite themselves. That's what happens in this world is that we fall away. We go errant. We go, get into drugs. We get into whatever. God does not forget the faith that we professed in him. All right. He seals us with the Holy Spirit. God does not make mistakes. If he sealed you and he took it back at one, was a terrible guarantee, and two, he made a mistake in the process. And that is not the God of the Bible, okay? But some people just, they, they don't want to believe that. That's fine. Disagree, but it's not going to change my feelings on that at all. Or I shouldn't even say my feelings. It's not going to say what the Bible says on that at there all. We there we go. Anyway, the what? My convictions on what the Bible says. That's correct. Okay, so um, our heavenly position is settled. And because of this, we have, as Paul says, been called to be saints. Being called saints is tied directly to the word sanctified, okay? It is the work of Jesus Christ which grants sainthood, not a church or a denomination. Why do I bring that up? Because we got one denomination which is filled with billions of people on this planet that say that you are made a saint by a group and by a pope, and that is not correct. A saint is a person who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. They have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and they are now saints, okay? We are not made saints by a human organization. We are made saints by faith in Jesus Christ. The real okay. saints. The what? The real 
really ain't. The, yeah, the, the really ain't. That's right. The uh, yeah. The abuse of using this title for some people within the church, while not using it for all, meaning saints, is certainly to be condemned. If a person is a true believer in Jesus Christ, they are a saint. The litany of the saints is a long and wonderful list which includes all who have called on him, not a select portion who are then elevated above the rest. Paul explains this again many, many times, such as in his words in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Here's what he says here. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Hang on a sec here. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And he says in verse 9. No, that's the wrong. Uh, that's chapter 2. Who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. God knew everything that was going to happen, every decision for Christ from the beginning of the church age all the way to the last person that calls on Jesus before the rapture. He knew it before he created a single Adam. Everything is known to God. There is nothing unknown to him, and it all was laid out in advance. Okay, This does not negate free will. Just because God knows something is going to happen does not mean that we don't actually make it the profession. Okay, Our free will does not negate God's foreknowledge, and that's a problem that Reformed churches teach. They teach that man doesn't have free will in salvation, but they don't deny it in any other part of a man's life. Now, you have free will to do this, you have free will to do that, but they say in salvation you don't. And they use the verse that I used from Ephesians earlier about being dead in our sins and trespasses. They said, well, if you're dead, then you can't make a, you can't make a profession for Christ. Well, that is what's called a category mistake. We are not dead beings. We are spiritually dead. What happens is we, as cognitive, rational beings, which is given by God, make a decision, he regenerates our spirit. There is no thing that we can do to regenerate our spirit is the point. Christ did the work. He did the work. We receive what he did and our spirit is regenerated. Okay. We are not dead beings. Okay. Um, we got a couple more minutes. Let's go on. Um, as Paul notes to Timothy, it is not according to works. Instead, it is exactly as he states to both Timothy and to those in Corinth. It is an honor for all in every place to call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both ours and theirs, as Paul says. To call on the name means to invoke the name for the purpose of worship. One doesn't call on the name of Jesus and then revert back to the name of Jehovah of the Old Testament, as the Jehovah's Witnesses and other aberrant cults do. You get the logic there? They say, yeah, Jesus is my Savior, and then they say, but Jehovah is the one that I worship. It doesn't work that way. Jesus is the final manifestation of who Jehovah is. He is Jehovah incarnate. That's why when you call on Jesus as Lord in Romans 10, 9 and 10, it is implying that you are calling on him as Jehovah. He is the Lord. You're not calling on Jehovah. You're calling on how he has manifested himself in human uh, redemptive history. Okay. In time and space, it is Jesus. All right. Um, so uh, it is the recognition that Jesus is, in fact, the Lord Jehovah, who was manifest in the flesh. It is, his, it is by his name alone, Jesus, that we must be saved. Where is that recorded? Acts, Acts chapter 4. Exactly. Where? Did you say the verse? 412. 412. Very good. Were you going to read that? <laughs> I had an open. Go ahead. Read it. Very good. There is salvation and no, uh, no one else, for there is no other name under heaven 
that have been given among men by which we must be saved. Must be saved. But what they do is they say, okay, so we're saved by Jesus, but we worship Jehovah. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all if you just think it through. Jehovah has come. He has revealed himself. He is Jesus Christ our Lord. It's just, it's simple. Anyway, in finishing up this verse, oh, we're going to have to finish with this verse too. In finishing up this verse, the word both theirs and ours, Paul's words, both theirs and ours, is given to imply that sainthood and acceptance of Jesus Christ isn't limited to a location such as Corinth, nor a denomination such as Roman Catholicism, nor is it limited in any other way except on calling on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord. Mel Gibson, I remember reading an interview by him one time and they asked him about salvation and he says, well, you can only be saved if you're a Catholic. And they said, what do you mean? He says, that comes, comes right from the chair, meaning the Pope. He says, that's what he says and so I believe it. Can you imagine that? That's completely contrary to what, and so he's got this in his head, this poor guy, is in this bondage to this church because he believes that that's the path to salvation. That it's just horrifying. Anyway, it's not limited in any other way except calling on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord. Any one of any race, place, culture, or individual church who calls on him is a saint, and his name is written in heaven. Jew or Gentile, male or female, all are one in him. Whether this letter was intended as an encyclical or not, it is a timeless letter. Does everybody know what an encyclical is? It goes to this church and they send it on next church and next church. That's an encyclical. It may have been just written for Corinth and they kept it. It may have been written. It says in some of them, make sure that you share this letter with the, the people, I think Colossae and vice versa. Anyway, so um, uh, it may have been encyclical. It was probably only written for Corinth. We don't know. Because it is in the Bible, it wasn't just intended to be read by one or all the churches in the area and then stored away. Rather, God has used it to provide doctrine to all churches in all ages. However, the contents of the letter seem so targeted to Corinth, and there are many flaws that it would seem they wouldn't want the letter circulated, thus embarrassing them. But when thoughtfully considered, the same problems arise again and again and again in all churches at one time or another. If you we get through these things and you say, I've never saw that in a church, I'll be surprised. It happens everywhere. Why? Because we're all human beings. We all make the same stupid mistakes. We all think the same bad thoughts. Not all the same, but you know what I'm saying. In a general way, we all have the same human condition. Okay? This is why reading and contemplating the words of Scripture are so very important. Life application, and we will be done. The Bible and its books especially Paul's letters, give us direct guidance for the many issues which are bound to arise within the church. Church tradition, although welcoming and comforting to congregants, is never to be used as a substitute for adherence to Scripture. If your church has more tradition than Bible, time to move from your church. Yeah. Stick to the Bible and be instructed by God. Okay? Here we go. Heavenly Father. Thank you. We finished just on time today. It was a good class, I hope. I hope that uh, somebody's been blessed by what they've heard today and uh, that the study of 1 Corinthians will be according to your word and that we won't deviate from what is proper and sound. But Lord, if I am wrong in a precept or if I'm wrong in a concept, I would ask that you would alert the people to this and uh, send them to a teacher that would correct my failings. But we would pray this isn't so and we certainly would never intentionally misuse your word. 
It is precious and it is glorious. Lord, once again, we thank you for our dear sister being back here with her husband and sharing a, a Bible study with us after all this time. We pray for Bruce and uh, Jackie and their daughter, Elise, that what has happened will come out to your glory in the end. Lord, we certainly ask this and we want to give you praise and glory. We just love you. We adore you for who you are and for what you've done for us in your great salvation of our souls. Thank you for that. And we praise you in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me back this up.